This is WMNF Tampa, and this is Background Briefing. Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the continuing exchange of rockets and airstrikes between Hamas and the Israeli Defense Forces and the communal violence erupting in Israel between Israeli nationalists and Israeli Arabs. Joining us is Zaha Hassan, a human rights lawyer and visiting fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, whose research focuses on Palestine-Israel peace and U.S. foreign policy in the region. She was previously the coordinator and senior legal advisor to the Palestinian delegation negotiating UN membership and a member of the Palestinian delegation to the quartet-sponsored talks between 2011 and 2012. We'll discuss the extent to which concerns over vigilante attacks and lawlessness inside of Israel might restrain any ground invasion of Gaza, given the likelihood that an escalation of this fighting would only intensify an already volatile situation amongst Jewish and Israeli Arab communities. Then we'll speak with Dr. Amy Shadalja, who is a senior scholar at the Johns Hopkins University Center for Health Security, whose work focuses on emerging disease, pandemic, preparedness and biosecurity, who has served on U.S. government panels developing treatments for infectious disease emergencies. He joins us to discuss the announcement today by the CDC that Americans who have been fully vaccinated against the coronavirus may stop wearing masks or maintaining social distance in most indoor and outdoor settings, regardless of their size. Then finally, we'll examine the civil war between the Republican Party following the purging of Liz Cheney for not falling into line with the rest of the GOP behind a wannabe autocrat responsible for the January 6th attack on American democracy. Joining us is Mike Lofgren, who spent 28 years working in Congress with the last six as a senior analyst of the House and Senate Budget Committee, who is the author of The Party Is Over, How Republicans Went Crazy, Democrats Became Useless, and the middle class got shafted. We'll discuss his article at Common Dreams, Liz Cheney, and thus the revolution devours its children, and how Republican state legislatures are hard at work passing laws to sabotage the franchise and criminalize protests across the country so that House Republicans can win the midterm elections, then dismantle democracy as we have seen in countries like Hungary and Turkey. And joining us now is Zaha Hassan, who is a human rights lawyer and visiting fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, where her research focuses on Palestine-Israel peace, the use of international legal mechanisms by political movements, and U.S. foreign policy in the region. Previously, she was the coordinator and a senior legal advisor to the Palestinian negotiating team during Palestine's bid for UN membership and was a member of the Palestine delegation to quartet-sponsored exploratory talks between 2011 and 2012. Welcome to Background Briefing, Zaha Hassan. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for joining us. And it's a very sad situation that's happening now in Israel and in Palestine and in particular in Gaza but it seems to me, at least based upon reporting now coming out of Haaretz, that the Israeli military that's poised for land invasion of Gaza may actually be pulling back because the political authorities are concerned that 
This will provoke more unrest across Israel itself, where there have been a lot of communal violence. So is that what you're hearing, that the political authorities are really more alarmed by the communal violence inside Israel itself, in a sense, than they are by the rockets coming in from Gaza and the Israeli airstrikes in retaliation? Look, I mean, Israel has uh, a very effective Iron Dome that intercepts most of um, Hamas rockets. I don't think it's to Israel's advantage to think about, you know, sending in ground forces. Um, That hasn't gone well in the past. And I don't think for, um, you know, Israel, uh, the idea of losing soldiers and they don't want to have soldiers kidnapped. So I don't, I, I don't think even without what, what we're seeing inside of Israel with the mobs attacking Palestinians on the street or trying to enter their homes and pulling them out or what you're seeing in, in the old city is the determinative factor as much as it is that, you know, this was a show of force. And there's real, you know, there's a real concern here um, about what might happen if ground forces were to move into Gaza, as well as the fact that the U.S., um, though it's been publicly saying that Israel has a right to defend itself, uh, behind the scenes, there is, I'm sure, (laughs) warnings to Israel about not escalating this beyond what we're seeing currently. So I think for all, for, you know, for all those reasons, you know, it was not likely that we were going to see the ground troops go in. Now that could change. I mean, we're in we're in a very odd moment politically for for Israel because there is no government, and we have a sitting prime minister who's in the middle of a trial, and he's facing losing power and very much wants to stay relevant. So. There's a lot of wild cards here as well, but I do think it, that everyone should be concerned about what's going on inside Israel, and not just inside Israel, but across the occupied territories, um, inside the West Bank. We haven't seen this level of violence in some time, but we're also seeing a sense among Palestinians that they're all in this together, so that what happens in, um, you know, Haifa is impacting what happens, you know, inside of Nablus or Ramallah or anywhere else, because Israel's treatment of Palestinians knows no borders, no boundaries, and it's one system. And I think, you know, finally we have, we have confirmation of this in terms of Israeli human rights groups, in terms of Human Rights Watch's recent report. And I think that, you know, the events in Jerusalem, and especially in Sheikh Jarrah, the displacement, the forced displacement that was, you know, on, on the verge of taking place there and is still threatened to take place, has really, you know, raised the issue and made it much more urgent for people and made it much more untenable for there to be sort of an acquiescence or, or lack of resistance to it. And so that's what we're seeing now because, you know, the Palestinians, whether they live in Sheikh Jarrah or they live in, you know, Haifa or they live in, um, you know, Ramallah, understand that the policies and the system that they've been exposed to is the same. 
and they're all threatened. Um, they're threatened in terms of either their own personal displacement or they have already been displaced or, you know, they, um, you know, they, the whole identity and their connection to their, their communities and their, their land is threatened. So I think that's what we're seeing. And that's, that's the real issue here is the, is the underlying human rights concerns. And it's not just whether or not today or tomorrow or in a week, the bombing is going to stop in, in Gaza. And again, I'm speaking with Zaha Hassan, who is a human rights lawyer and visiting fellow at the Canadian Endowment for International Peace, where her research focuses on Palestine-Israel peace, the use of international legal mechanisms by political movements, and U.S. foreign policy in the region. Previously, she was the coordinator and senior legal advisor to the Palestinian negotiating team during Palestine's bid for UN membership and was a member of the Palestinian delegation to quartet-sponsored exploratory talks between 2011 and 2012. But is the fact that there appears to be total sort of unity amongst Palestinians and Israeli Arabs who are Palestinian and Israel for the longest time has prided itself on the fact that it is a democracy in which it has Arab citizens of Israel. And now that sort of notion has been blown up, hasn't it, because of this communal violence and the extent to which Israeli vigilantes are rampaging through these areas in the, where you have uh, Israeli Arabs whose homes are being attacked I mean, there's communal violence on both sides, but one of the more shocking things was a video of a, of a man being pulled out of a car and, and it was described as a lynching. It was an, an, a lynching attempt, I guess, to be technical. The man is in, in hospital. So is that something that's changed? And has that been a wake-up for the Israeli government authorities? First, I would say, you know, Israel's a democracy for its Jewish citizens. And we know, we know this because Israel confirmed that in 2018 when it passed the Jewish nation state law, which is basically has constitutional, has constitutional or quasi-constitutional law that, that basically says that, that only Jewish people have a right to self-determination inside of the territory Israel claims as its state. So if you're a Palestinian citizen of Israel, you don't have a recognized right to self-determination. You could lose your citizenship and be denationalized because only Jewish people have an exclusive right to self-determination. And similarly, if you're a Palestinian living in the occupied territories where Israel claims its sovereignty, you don't have a right to self-determination in the occupied territories. Um, because you're not Jewish. And if you're a Palestinian refugee who can, you know, who was displaced from a community inside of what became the state of Israel, you also don't have a right to self-determination anywhere where Israel is claiming its sovereignty. So this idea that Israel is a democracy, it's, it's a democracy for its Jewish citizens. And sure, Palestinian citizens of Israel can vote, but they can't be part of a government you know, they don't, uh, you know, the Israeli parties will, not, will never welcome as long as we have this kind of Israeli government where it's extreme right wing, ultra nationalist. It's not going to accept Palestinians to sit in government with them. Maybe they will make deals with 
Arab parties, Palestinian parties, in order to secure enough seats to to form a government. But what we're seeing is that, you know, there is that separation between Palestinian citizens of Israel and the reins of government. So that's one thing. In terms of the the violence that we're seeing inside of of Israel, the, the difference between the Palestinians that have attacked Israeli Jewish citizens is that they don't have the backing of the state behind them. When, when you've seen these, some of the footage that we, we've seen of, of uh, Israeli Jews attacking Palestinian citizens, you've seen also Israeli police with them in some of those cases. So that's the difference. If you're already a marginalized group and you're already not treated as an equal citizen by this basic law of Israel that it has constitutional authority, if that's already the perception of you, how secure can you feel as a citizen of that country? Well, you mentioned the Israeli Arab parties in the Knesset. At the moment, Neftali Bennett, who's a far right, much further to the right than even Netanyahu is, he's trying to form a government, and I believe he was trying to form a government in coalition with an Israeli Arab party that's an Islamist party, and I can't imagine under these conditions that that party would want to join him. Even I don't understand why it want to join him in the first place, but at this point, I don't see that happening. So, I had I spoke yesterday with some Israeli analysts who were suggesting that Netanyahu, in effect, is benefiting from this situation just because as long as he stays in power, and maybe the power dynamic will shift in his favor, because he has to stay in power in order to avoid going to jail. It's that simple. It's that, it's, that's exactly right. I would agree with them. He's the one that stands to benefit. And think about how this, how this whole thing unraveled. It unraveled when you had police heavy-handed tactics, you know, at the, in the old city in front of the Damascus Gate where it's Ramadan and you have young people congregating as they do every Ramadan. And the last days of Ramadan, the most sacred days of the month, when you had all these police, you know, just viciously um, and brutally attacking those young people. And then, and then you had, you know, the incidents at, at Sheikh Jarrah and the violence there and the lack of a police protection really for, uh, for the Palestinians in that neighborhood and facing forced displacement. And then followed, following that, you had the attack inside the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Now, Netanyahu is a very smart politician, and he knows very well what that means to have that kind of visual for Israeli border police and others coming into a sacred space in the holiest month for Muslims in Jerusalem. So he, he, it, he can't have not known that that was going to provoke an escalation and a response from Hamas that thinks of itself as the guardian of Jerusalem and is very keen to to show Palestinians that it's the real representative of Palestinians, the real protector for Palestinians, as opposed to the Palestinian Authority that has no jurisdiction in East Jerusalem, has no way of helping 
the Palestinians living in East Jerusalem, occupied East Jerusalem, and is looking very emasculated uh, compared to Hamas, who is sending rockets, right? So Netanyahu had to, had to have known that that kind of escalation in, in Jerusalem, in the Haram, and the Al-Aqsa Mosque was, would have produced that response from, from Hamas. And in fact, Hamas gave, gave a warning and said, look, if you don't back down and get out of the Al-Aqsa Mosque, if you don't pull those police back, then we, we're going to respond. So it wasn't like anyone was hiding <laughs> what was going to happen, right? And that's exactly what we, what we saw happen then. We saw Hamas respond. And of course, Israel's not going to allow Hamas to send rockets without, without responding to that. And that's where we are today. So it was completely preventable, but it, it definitely served Netanyahu in the end. And just to add, you know, there, the international community bears some responsibility here, in particular the United States, because the United States, the statements that it was making it's, at the State Department, they were very weak. And if you read them in the early days when these, uh, the police were attacking the young people in front of the Damascus Gate or when they started storming the Al-Aqsa Mosque, the statements that you were seeing from the State Department, you couldn't tell who they were talking about. It was like both sides need to, you know, reduce violence or what have you, but without even naming who, who they're talking about in some of the statements. So, uh, you know, there needed to be much more clarity from the U.S. and the State Department to its closest ally with whom it has a special relationship with whom it provides or to whom it provides $3.8 billion of security assistance per year. There had to be more clarity in saying, no, that's, that's completely unacceptable. There should be no uh, police brutality, police oppression of peaceful worshipers inside of the mosque. But you didn't get that. Instead, instead there was this both-side-ism sort of treatment of like, you know, e- equating the worshipers inside the mosque with police that were attacking them. So, you know, there's, there's that. And also the U.S. Has, has not allowed the Security Council to issue a statement even. And what, what's the message then to Palestinians if, you know, they can't even get a statement out of the Security Council because the U.S. is blocking it? Uh, that, only, that only emboldens and empowers Hamas because Hamas then looks like the only game in town, right? There's nobody, there's nobody going to be looking out for Palestinians who are facing, you know, if you're in Gaza, you're facing, you know, bombardment from sophisticated Israeli weaponry and, and warplanes. If you're in inside Israel, a citizen, Palestinian citizen of Israel, you're facing mobs with, with the police backing them up. And if you're in, in the occupied territories, you're, you're, you're facing down the Israeli defense forces, Israeli occupying forces in, in, the, in the occupied territories. And who's protecting them? So, I mean, this is, it's really been an unfortunate response by the U.S. and an unfortunate, you know, I should say lack of response by the U.S. and an unfortunate lack of response by the international community to try to to prevent us from getting to the place we are now. Well, clearly, as you point out, just in closing, Zaha Hassan, that in terms of Palestinian opinion, uh, there's no question that Hamas comes out of this as the winner. 
the Palestinian Authority is, is irrelevant, I guess. They cancelled an election because they knew they were going to lose at any rate. So at the end of the day, there's this massive asymmetry between this powerful state of Israel and the diminishing state of Palestine. And what do you think at the end of the day? I've always thought that somebody ought to demand that the Israeli right speak honestly about what their end game is, because as far as I can tell, their, their end game is they just want to make life so miserable for the Palestinians that somehow that they'll just slink off into Jordan. So at the end of the day, what is the best weapon that the Palestinians have? I don't mean militarily, but in terms of world opinion, because of the asymmetry of power, in order to get some justice. Yeah, I don't think the Israeli right wing is is hiding anything. I mean, I think under the Trump administration, everything was put on the table, really. You know, they there is a, a desire to see Palestinians either further isolated in, in the enclaves that they're currently in, in the West Bank, and, and fragmented between the West Bank and Gaza so that they're controllable. And, and Israel wants to take sovereignty over the entirety of the area, security control over the entirety of the, over the entire area with Palestinians just being allowed to exist where they currently exist. I mean, this was the Trump plan and, um, and it was, it was called a, a state, but nobody was fooled by, by what that was. That's apartheid. And, um, you know, so now what, what is, what are Palestinians to do? I mean, the first order of business was to get their own house in order so they could, to, you know, as one people determine what, you know, the strategies moving forward should be, what the national project, how it might be reimagined given the realities that we're currently in. But we thought that, you know, even, even elections for this very diminished body called the Palestinian Authority couldn't take place, right? So... What you're seeing now is Palestinians taking charge of their own uh, destiny. They are, you know, engaging in their own ways of resisting. And there's starting to, you're starting to see some kind of coordination, some kind of sense of agency that you haven't seen in the past. And the most disempowered have been really the, those who live in East Jerusalem. And so it's telling that this whole thing was sparked by um, young people in East Jerusalem who have neither a Palestinian authority to point to nor an Israeli government that could say, be said to represent them. And, and they're sort of just out there and, and they've, they've taken the reins and they've said, you know, we're not going to, we're not going to be displaced again. We, you know, 48 happened and this ongoing displacement's got to end somewhere, and it's going to end with them. And so, you know, I, I think it's it's early, it's too early to see where this is all going to go. But I, if you've seen the images of some of these young people as they're getting arrested, and they're turning around and they're stopping and looking at looking at those who are filming them or taking pictures of them, and they smile, and the smile is like a, it's it's eerie in a way, but it's. It's amazing because it's these these young people are fearless. They've seen so much and they've been repressed for so long and they have absolutely no future. 
you know, given the unemployment rate in the occupied territories, what it is, you know, 24, 25, 29%, they aren't, you know, afraid of anything because they have nothing to lose. And so that should, that should be very, you know, that should be a wake up call for, for Israel. It should be something that the U.S. who, um, you know, has been providing Israel with, you know, so much support and so much political cover in the UN, it should, it should mobilize the U.S. to want to engage in a positive way, a, a way that respects the rights and security of Palestinians in the same way it respects the rights and security of, of Israelis. Uh, will that happen? You know, I don't know. I, I think that, unfortunately, this administration has, you know, taken the position that it doesn't, it doesn't want to invest its time and resources in engaging in, in this kind of constructive way. Um, it, it seems to be more interested in sort of just, you know, conflict mitigation, but not uh, conflict resolution. Well, Zaha Hassan, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Oh, thank you for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Zahra Hassan, who is a human rights lawyer and visiting fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, where her research focuses on Palestine-Israel peace, the use of international legal mechanism by political movements and U.S. foreign policy in the region. Previously, she was the coordinator and senior legal advisor to the Palestinian negotiating team during Palestine's bid for U.N. membership and was a member of the Palestinian delegation to quartet-sponsored exploratory talks between 2011 and 2012. We can take a brief station break. We'll be back discussing the announcement today by the CDC that Americans who have been fully vaccinated against the coronavirus may stop wearing masks or maintaining social distance. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Dr. Amish Adalja, who is a senior scholar at the Johns Hopkins University Center for Health Security. His work focuses on emerging infectious diseases, pandemic preparedness, and biosecurity. And he served on the U.S. government panel tasked with developing guidelines for the treatment of plague, botulism, and anthrax in mass casualty settings and the system of care for infectious diseases emergencies. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dr. Amish Adalja. Thanks for having me. So the CDC have just announced that fully vaccinated adults can dispense with their masks, and this feels like a very big deal. Do you think that there'll be a kind of sense of liberation going on here across the United States? Definitely, uh, and there should be a, a sense of liberation because 
what these vaccines do is liberate you from the fear of COVID-19, fear from yourself becoming infected and fear from you being a threat to others. So I think this is really welcome guidance that's re- that reflects the science and the biology of this virus. And I think it's something that many of us have been advocating for the CDC to do for some time now. And do you think it will stop the politicization or at least put a dent in it in the sense that we have, I believe there was a recent study that said 40% of Republicans would refuse to be vaccinated and I assume they also would refuse to wear masks. I do think it will help with the politicization because people had said why if these vaccines are so valuable, if you have so much confidence in in the vaccines, why do you still recommend people wear masks and and not change their behavior so much when you're vaccinated? And I think now the CDC, you know, has removed that type that criticism because the evidence is overwhelming on the value of these vaccines. So hopefully that will, will get people to actually understand the value of these vaccines and understand how public health guidance comes about, that it is based on science, that it is based on biology and, and that that it reflects what's known about the virus, what's known about transmission. So are there any limitations on fully vaccinated people not wearing masks? I mean, are there recommendations, for example, if you travel on public transportation, etc.? Right now, I think for certain venues, because it's operationally very difficult to say who's vaccinated, who is not vaccinated, people on, for example, Uh, airplanes or people on public transportation or even people in some private businesses are going to continue to be required to wear masks because it's hard to operationalize that. But if you're a workplace and you can verify people's vaccination status, if you're having a get together or a meeting, uh, you can dispense with the, with the masks and and really not be, not be in violation of, of CDC public health guidance. So I think that you'll still see masks around in the unvaccinated and some businesses uh, as well. But I think it's, it's coming, it's getting closer and closer uh, where masks will be something that's purely optional and not something that you see around as cases come down and as more people get vaccinated. And what do you think the progress will be now that Pfizer has been authorized to vaccinate uh, teenagers between 12 and 15? How quickly do you think this is going to spread to the broader population? I, I do think that there's going to be an initial surge of parents who want their 12 to 15-year-olds vaccinated, and that's going to increase the population level of immunity, increase the percentage of the population that's fully vaccinated, and that will have an impact on cases. It will also be something that makes a lot of extracurricular activities and sporting events, and summer camps, uh, easier to have because there'll be less disruption from COVID-19. I think, um, you know, every dose of vaccine that goes into someone someone's arms makes it a little bit harder for this vac- this virus to disrupt our lives. So I think this is a good thing, and, and hopefully we see a, a big uptake. There's about 17 million uh, children between the ages of 12 and 15, and, and having a good proportion of those individuals vaccinated will uh, make, a, make a dent in, in transmission and, and get us closer to a level of immunity where the virus finds it inhospitable in this country. Of course, there have been some reports that fully vaccinated parents are still leery of uh, having their children vaccinated. Is there any way to deal with that resistance, perhaps work with pediatricians, et cetera? Well, what we have to do is really talk about the vaccine, the data behind the vaccines. And when you look at the clinical trial data that led to the approval uh, in 12 to 15 years of age, it was a, a remarkably good trial with really high efficacy, zero cases of COVID-19 in the in the vaccine arm of the trial and side effects that were nothing out of the ordinary, nothing that was really worrisome. And uh, I, I think that that's the best we, we can do. The vaccine is the best salesman for itself. And I think we have to talk to parents and understand what their concerns may be and try and meet them where they are and, and hopefully uh, uh, urge them to, to get 
to get their children vaccinated, to see the value of having the child, their child vaccinated. And again, I'm speaking with Dr. Amish Adalja, a senior scholar at the Johns Hopkins University Center for Health Security, whose work focuses on emerging infectious disease, pandemic preparedness, and biosecurity. He has served on U.S. government panels tasked with developing guidelines for the treatment of plague, botulism, and anthrax in mass casualty settings, and the system of care for infectious disease emergencies. So is it possible then that uh, we will have a kind of, uh, I talked earlier about a sort of uh, liberation, if you will. Will this, you think, translate to people now suddenly going back to movie theaters and malls, etc.? I mean, how quickly do you think there'll be an explosion of, of social activity that's been repressed for some time? It all depends upon the state you're living in. So, for example, if you're living in Florida or Texas, many of these venues have been open to you and people have been partaking in them. I think what you'll see overall is that there, this will probably be slow, people getting reacclimatized to their old lives, and then I think it will go very fast. So I think hopefully by summer we'll be in a position where uh, the summer of 2021 looks more like the summer of 2019 than the summer of 2020. So in terms of the race that we've had from the very beginning with this pandemic, the race between vaccination and mutation all that we're hearing about what's happening abroad particularly in india and south africa where there's a very low rate of vaccination is there any fear that some of these more deadly variants can come back and haunt us in other words uh, the virus doesn't respect national boundaries or international boundaries until everybody in the world is uh, vaccinated it's not going to go away so how do you put the announcement today from the CDC that fully vaccinated people don't have to wear masks in the context of the global situation? Well, the fully vaccinated, the best defense against variants is to be fully vaccinated because when it comes to even the more problematic variants, our vaccines are able to stop what matters, serious disease, hospitalization and death. So I do think that uh, that the United States, the more vaccinated we are, the less important those variants are going to be to our to our population. And that's the lesson for all the other countries as well, is to vaccinate as highly and as fast as possible when you're dealing with with a variant. We're not going to eliminate COVID-19. That's not something that's in the cards. This isn't a virus that's amenable to that because it has animal hosts. But we will get to a point where where COVID-19 is no longer able to threaten hospital capacity. And that's what flattening the curve has always been about. And I think we've done more than that in the United States with, with vaccinating our high-risk individuals and getting enough population immunity that we're seeing cases fall as well. So I think that while the global situation is concerning, I think that the lesson is the more the more vaccinated we are in this country, the less that those variants can disrupt our lives. However, it's really important that we try and control the pandemic in all corners of the globe because the world will remain disrupted until the pandemic is, is, has ended its acute phase in every country. But there's been recent reports that the number of people being vaccinated in this country have dropped off fairly sharply. Obviously, there was an anxiety on the part of a lot of the people to, to get the vaccination. And now that most people who wanted the vaccines have been vaccinated, how problematic is that statistic that the number of vaccinations is diminishing? You know, when you herd immunity, apparently, is said to be 70% or 80%, depending on how bad the variants are. Where would you say we are in terms of the percentage? 
we're at about 35% of the population fully vaccinated. And while herd immunity is an important milestone, it's not the be-all and end-all. Because if you look at countries that are highly vaccinated, like Israel, they saw a precipitous decline in cases when they reached about 40% of their total population fully vaccinated. So I think we will cross that threshold and cases will fall. If we get the herd immunity, that would be great, but I don't think that we should stake everything on that. The goal of the vaccines was not to eliminate COVID-19, but to remove its ability to cause serious disease, hospitalization, and death. And that's achieved by highly vaccinating your high-risk populations, like nursing home residents, community-dwelling high-risk people that were making up the bulk of hospitalizations. We were, you have to go back to the original you know, ideas about how what we were going to do in this pandemic, and that was to flatten the curve, to keep it below hospital capacity. That is the goal that's always really been the overarching goal, and I think I think we're there. The more we get vaccinated, the easier that becomes, but I think we're, we're, the United States has been successful in, in taming the virus, defanging it, and decoupling cases from hospitalizations and deaths. Well, just in closing then, do you believe that we've reached an important milestone here and that we can sort of relax now and enjoy our lives? Is it? I think we have reached an important milestone. I think we still need to try to urge our friends and family members to get vaccinated because the more people that are vaccinated, the easier all of these decisions will become. Well, I thank you very much for joining us here today, Dr. Amish Adalja. Thank you. And we've been speaking with Dr. Amy Shadalja, who is a senior scholar at the Johns Hopkins University Center for Health Security, whose work focuses on emerging infectious disease, pandemic preparedness, and biosecurity. And he has served on U.S. government panels tasked with developing guidelines for the treatment of plague, botulism, and anthrax in mass casualty settings and the system of care for infectious disease emergencies. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining the civil war inside the Republican Party. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Mike Lofkin, who has spent 28 years working in Congress, the last 16 as a senior analyst on the House and Senate Budget Committees. He's the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Party Is Over, How Republicans Went Crazy, Democrats Became Useless, and the Middle Class Got Shafted. And he has an article at Common Dreams, Liz Cheney, and thus, The Revolution Devours Its Children. Welcome to Background Briefing, Mike Lofgren. Thank you. So there's an expectation today, Thursday, that this GOP group that have organized to oppose Donald Trump, and apparently they were supposed to announce on Thursday a public letter signed by more than 100 of the prominent Republicans. So at this point it hasn't come out, and but what we're told that's in the letter is that 
They're calling upon Republicans to either reimagine a party dedicated to our founding ideals or else hasten the creation of an alternative that is a third party. So what do you think about that possibility? I think it's unlikely because the whole electoral college system in the United States discourages third parties. They tend never to get off the ground. And I think never Trump Republicans, there's a certain number of them among the elites, the people who write in Atlantic Magazine, like David Frum, and so forth. But there's not many voters who are supporting that. It's not going to go anywhere. To the extent it got 5 or 6% of the vote, it would merely take votes away from the Democrats and throw the government into the hands of the Trump Republican Party. So, in other words, these would be Republicans who might vote Democrat, but if they had an alternative, they would then hurt the Democrats. They wouldn't hurt the Republicans. Right, and I don't think they're doing that intentionally. I think they're deluded. You know, if you actually work in government for a while, as I did, uh, you kind of understand how the mechanics work, and ideological principles and all those uh, highfalutin things tend to go out the window. It's the pure mechanics of who gets the votes. So let's turn to your article, Mike, at Common Dreams, Liz Cheney and thus the revolution devours its children. And I suppose it's sort of a situation where the enemy of my enemy is my friend, but she's not exactly the greatest messenger as you point out, to get behind. It's great that she's standing up against Trump's big lie, which the entire Republican Party has adopted. But as you point out in your article, she was instrumental in incubating the mother of all big lies, which was, of course, the means by which the United States got into that disastrous war in Iraq. So elaborate on that, if you will. Well, she was basically through nepotism by her father uh, employed in the State Department and was working as a principal deputy assistant secretary for Near Eastern Affairs at the very time the Iraq War was going on. And she and her dad were sedulously uh, pushing the lie that Saddam Hussein was in cahoots with Osama, which was totally not the case, and had conspired to bring down the twin towers of the World Trade Center and were harboring weapons of mass destruction. Those were lies. They were flat-out lies. And, you know, for someone to, at this point, say that, well, yes, it's a big lie that uh, Donald Trump claims the election was stolen from him. Kudos. Fine. 
but that does not erase the record of history. Well, it is, uh, as I mentioned, a situation, as far as I can see, is uh, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. I mean, what else? Certainly. What else is there to grasp here when you see one of the two American parties become an extremist party, become an authoritarian party before our eyes? And as your article points out, the Republican Party, contrary to what observers might have thought in the shock of the events of the 6th of January 2021, the Republican Party has become even more extreme than when Trump was president. And That's right. Uh, in the state legislatures, they're passing uh, bills to restrict voting. In other words deny American citizens the franchise. Um, they're floating bills basically to uh, license the press. They don't want anybody criticizing them. This is the characteristic thing of a totalitarian party. And, okay... Um, you can probably figure that on some random basis, some Republican like Liz Cheney will have had enough. And probably because of the, her nepotistic background as part of uh, a Republican dynasty, um, she felt that Trump was this interloper, this kind of gutter patriot, the same way many uh, Germans who were reactionaries and aristocrats looked down on Hitler as a bohemian corporal. Well, if they oppose uh, Trump, fine. If they oppose uh, the notion of a stolen election, fine, but that doesn't mean we should give them accolades for the rest of their uh, beliefs. But clearly, having the extremists take over the Republican Party in the service of this dreadful man who tried to is trying to steal the election, tried to rewrite history, who inspired the assault on the Capitol, whose tenure was absolutely ruinous, if he gets back, and that's what Liz Cheney says, she's going to make sure that he never gets back into the White House, but if in 2022 the Republicans take the House and all of this activity that's going on in Republican legislatures, which unfortunately have the majority of the state legislatures, you're arguing that it may be too late. It may be all over for American democracy. Well, uh, I've always thought we're one election away from potential dictatorship, and people should take that seriously. Uh, we've always brushed that under the carpet for years and decades and centuries in the United States, that it's just a bunch of, you know, nuts who can be disregarded. Uh, in places like France or Germany, they know better now that it can happen there, and it can happen here. And again, I'm speaking with Mike Lofkin, who spent 28 years working in Congress, the last 16 as a senior analyst on the House and Senate Budget Committees. He's the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Party is Over, How Republicans Went Crazy, Democrats Became Useless, 
and the middle class got shafted. And he has an article at Common Dreams, Liz Cheney and thus the revolution devours its children. So let's walk through some of these scenarios. I mean, we've seen democracy stolen and undermined in Hungary by Viktor Orban. And of course, he first went after the courts. And in Trump's case, he didn't have to go after the courts. He stacked them with like-minded right-wing ideas. Or Moscow Mitch, his friend, did. Right. But then he went after the university. So you think that the new Trump party, particularly if it wins power in the House in 2022, will start censoring criticism, will go after they universities? They would try. Uh-huh. Uh, now, that wouldn't get past the Biden administration, but if they won the presidency and both houses in 2024, they certainly would do that. I have no doubt that they would. So, but they're a reflection. I mean, they would call it uh, defamation or something like that, uh, or slander against politicians, or they would uh, have some euphemism about national security uh, as a kind of cover, but it would basically be censorship. But this is happening because they have support among the American people, and that's the most frightening part of it all. Seven out of ten Republicans believe that Trump won the election, that Biden is an illegitimate president, and that many of them believe that what happened on January the 6th was a love fest where Trump supporters were hugging and kissing the uh, police and uh, that the violence was all done by Antifa. These are becoming metastasize these beliefs within, I don't know, what, 74 million people voted for him. I don't know what percentage of that 74 million, well, if you, if it's 7 out of 10 of them, then you know what it is. It's, a, what, 50 million Americans are locked into this sick delusion that this horrible man should be their president and he controls their party. So doesn't it go beyond Trump, the problem? Oh, it goes well beyond Trump. Uh, we can't be total optimists about the human uh, condition. Uh, when American and uh, British and Commonwealth forces entered Germany in 1945, oh, I'm sure some of them were thoroughly fed up with Hitler and the Nazis uh, because they had been bombed and suffered privations. But probably about the same percentage of them uh, lived in this kind of dream world of how can this be happening? Everything was wonderful. But that's the part. They keep saying what great things Trump did. And for the life of me, I can't uh, look at the record. The United States forces in 1946 took public opinion polls in the parts of Germany they occupied. And close to 50% of the German public thought Hitler was fine. Few of his ideas went too far. Right, but Germany today is a completely different country. I mean, the Green Party is probably going to... Their leader is probably going to be the next chancellor. Well, they seem to be doing a lot better than the Social Democrats. And perhaps... 
Uh, it took some horrific events like World War II uh, to teach them that democracy is a very fragile thing. And once you empower demagogues, watch out. We haven't. We've brushed everything under, well, it's a few nuts, and in any case, they're protected by the First Amendment, and people pretend that it's not an American sickness, which it is. It's a legacy of our past. But as I was about to say earlier, Mike, lots of Republicans who support Trump and have this weird nostalgia for the four years of ruination that we just went through keep saying he did some wonderful things. And for the life of me, you can't find anything that he did that was wonderful. The only thing he did that was wonderful was wonderful for the 1% of the 1% with these tax cuts. But there was almost nothing he did except get rid of regulations and empower the worst kind of elements of this country and put the worst kind of people in charge of government departments who were dedicated to the destruction of the very departments they had. So how do you heal that disconnect? I mean, obviously, uh, there's I, mythology I don't know here. how to deal with it. I mean, I've talked to people uh, who've said he's done more for this country than any president in my lifetime. And in that case, it went all the way back to Franklin Roosevelt. I can't understand it. So what's that based on? What, where do people get these ideas? They're seeing somebody so different from what I see, and I wonder what can break the spell. I mean, I think at some point or other we'll learn that he's a traitor, and that maybe that'll do it. But he's clear that he's a criminal, and that's not resonating. Well, it's possible to live in a bubble for a very long time. And when it's reinforced uh by a social situation which we really haven't had in in the world before uh, in just the last few years of the saturation of social media and things like Fox News, that's their reality. So, I guess, is it a problem of education? I mean, when, for example... The newest senator in the United States Senate, this guy Tommy Turberville, the football coach down in Alabama, who Trump championed and who got elected, he believes that his father, who landed in D-Day, you're talking about World War II there a minute ago, Mike, he believes that his father, who landed at D-Day and fought to liberate Europe from the Nazis, was liberating Europe from socialists. He believes that. Oh, I, mean, I have no doubt. Does he not know? In fact, I, I heard that quote from him. Right. It doesn't I mean, surprise me. This is WMNF Tampa. Stay tuned for NPR News.